Uh, so tonight we're going to continue our study uh, in the book of Nehemiah, and we're up to chapter 10. So in our last couple of studies, we turned our attention to the spiritual reformation of the people. So the first half of the book was about reforming or rebuilding the walls. Then the second part of the book is about reforming the people. Now this spiritual reforming process commenced with a renewed focus on the word of God. This was the catalyst. And in our previous study in Nehemiah chapter 9, we considered uh, the prayer that came flowing out of the studying of the scriptures. And the text tonight documents the response of the people after the preaching and after the praying. So by way of reading, we'll start with verse 38 of chapter 9, and then we'll read into uh, chapter 10. So Nehemiah chapter 9, and we'll read from verse 38. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. Verse 1. Now those that sealed were, and then there is 84 names listed, there is three primary groups, are the priests in verse 2 through to verse 8, the Levites in verse 9 to verse 13, and the leaders of the people, or the heads of the families, in verse 14 through to 27. So let's now pick up our reading at verse 28. Uh, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Neathims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. They clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his judgments and his statutes, and that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this night. Father, thank you for uh, your word that you have spoken to us. I would do thank you, Father, for this uh, book of Nehemiah. Father, thank you for the time that we've been able to spend in, in studying uh, this uh, this book. I know it has blessed, uh, blessed my heart. And Father, I do pray uh, that you help me tonight as your servant to, uh, to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I'm not sure if this story is fact or fiction, but it illustrates an important thought to introduce this text. Now, in a certain church, there was a man who always ended his prayers with, and Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life. Or clean the cobwebs out of my life. Now, one of the members of the church became weary of hearing this same insincere request week after week because he saw no change in the petitioner's life. So the next time he heard the prayer, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life, he interrupted with, and while you are at it, Lord, kill the spider. It is one thing to offer up a passionate prayer of confession that we studied in Nehemiah chapter 9. 
but it is another thing to actually change. It's something entirely different, you know, to then in God's grace live a life of obedience, to actually fix what has been confessed. It is what happens after we say amen that is so crucial. For that reveals the authenticity of what was prayed, or proves whether it was just mere empty words. And it is so clear in the text before us that change was wanted. And this is vital, for one will not change if the desire to change is not present. But this nation that had lived in rebellion for such a long time was now determined by God's grace to have a new beginning. They wanted things to be different. And this is proven by the action that was taken after they said, Amen. They practiced the teaching of the Apostle James. They were not mere hearers of the word, but doers also. And we see this by the establishing of a covenant. And this is what this 10th chapter is all about. It is God's people making a covenant with God. Covenant making was a common practice in the ancient world. An agreement of some kind would be made. There would be an oath that one would be faithful in fulfilling their part of the arrangement. And then there would be blessings for fulfilling one's end of the deal. And of course, on the other side, there would be a punishment or a curse if one was unfaithful to the commitment that they agreed upon. That was a a standard covenant structure. And a covenant was a legal binding contract. The people of Nehemiah's day were certainly familiar with covenants because they were a part of their day-to-day lives. But they would have also been familiar with the covenants that God had made. They would have read about these through their scripture reading. And of course, there's the covenant with Abraham, with Moses, and with David. And at the end of this confessional prayer, it is decided to make a covenant with God. They were not content to simply feel that something had to be done about the sin problem, but they were determined to do something about it. In verse 38 of chapter 9, it says, We make a sure covenant. If this was literally translated, it says to cut a covenant. So covenants were not made in the ancient world, they were cut, because almost always an animal was sacrificed as part of the covenant. Now this making of the covenants with God was an outward sign of inward change. And this change was widespread. This is evidence in the text. Oh, this covenant was supported by the community at large. It was not just a select few. We have listed for us 84 different people who signed or sealed the covenants. And notice that Nehemiah is the first. So we have the leader setting the example. But the support was not restricted to just those who signed their name. For verse 28 makes it clear that this support was widespread. 
You know, it included the proselytes, you know, which are they who had converted to the faith, also the wives and the children, you know, those who were old enough to understand. So this had community supports. There is a very strong sense of personal responsibility and accountability. This was a, a widespread commitment to change. And this support was not forced or hoaxed out of the people, but it was a willing surrender to the conviction that had been wrought in their hearts by the proclamation of the scriptures and the work of the Spirit. The seriousness of this covenant is revealed in verse 29, where it says they entered into a curse and an oath. So an oath was a promise to keep the covenants, and the curse was the punishment if they broke their oath. And the curse in this particular situation was inviting divine judgment if they were unfaithful. When hence this was a serious commitment. It was no light or trivial thing. Numbers 30 verse 2, speaking about vows with God, says this. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. So this is a serious commitment. The question is, what was the oath that they took? What did they promise? Well, the covenant in general involved a recommitment to following the law of Moses. There was a recommitment to the scriptures. If God said it, then I will do it. Their consciences had become captivated by the word of God. Verse 29 makes this clear where it says, They clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his judgments and his statutes. So they committed themselves to practicing what they had read. They were determined to be doers of the word. But this covenant got more particular. It didn't just stay as a general thing. And they highlighted three specific areas of concern that needed to be urgently addressed. There was, number one, there was spousal separation. Then there was the sacredness of the Sabbath and supporting the sanctuary. Now, these were the three areas of particular concern. It seems as though they had evidently failed in these areas. And over the next few weeks, we're going to consider uh, these particular areas that form this covenantal agreement before God. And tonight I want to consider the first of these, you know, the issue of spousal separation. So please read with me again verse 30, which says, And that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. 
Now, the first pledge within this agreement before God was a marriage issue. I found it very interesting that this covenant began with reforming the family by recommitting to how God had instructed the family units to function. And he begins with marriage. And I found this interesting because the strength of the family is so vital to the strength of the church, the community, and a country. Where a family, particularly a marriage, is weak, it has drastic flow-on effects throughout a whole culture. And that is very evident within our own country. And in light of this, this is why Satan attacks the home. Why he attacks marriage. Because weak Marriages, weak families leads to weak churches and weak Christians. Christians who have very little effect for Christ in a community. And that is Satan's goal. You know, we are on Jesus' side and hence he tries to render us null and void. And probably nothing like a marriage that isn't as God prescribed can have a greater numbing effect on our walk with Christ And our effectiveness for him. And that is the issue at hand. Now it's evident that marrying pagans had become common practice. And we know through the Old Testament this was a problem that always plagued the Israelites. This would often happen because there was much financial or economic gain to be had through certain unions. And hence parents would arrange them. And when you think of the context, this makes much sense. You know, they are struggling to survive. There is not much money. But if their child marries into this wealthy family over here, it can bring in much wealth. Now, we need to remember, you know, when we we read here that it's the parents making the covenant. At this time, you know, parents were arranging the marriages. It's different to now. And as I just said, one of the reasons that marriage to pagans was present because it was a quick way to gain wealth, power, or influence. And I'm sure there were many other reasons for pursuing relationships with the people of the land. I'm sure they had elaborate reasons, as we often do, to justify our sin. But marrying the people of the land, they who were outside of the faith was clearly prohibited within the law of God. Both Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7 addresses this particular issue. And what's important to understand, the reason for this restriction is not because God is a racist, but rather he knows that these mixed marriages would result in being led away to worship pagan gods. Deuteronomy 7 verses 3 and 4 says this, and neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. So this is the reason behind this prohibition. It is religious, not race. And this is seen by the fact that Ruth and Rahab, two Gentile women from pagan nations, actually have a place in the line of Christ. 
because they were converted to the faith. The issue was that mixed marriages would result in mixed worship, in idolatry, in whoring after other gods. And there is a very clear illustration of this in the Old Testament. And of course that is King Solomon. This man had it all. He's the wisest man to ever live. God had blessed him abundantly. And yet 1 Kings 11 verses 3 and 4 have this to say. And when he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So his heart was turned away from his God because of the relationships that he pursued that God had forbidden. And this is why this particular restriction is found in the law of God. And because God had said it, the people in the time of Nehemiah were now determined to obey this teaching. You know, the parents covenanted before God that they would ensure that their children would not take an illegitimate spouse. And this particular principle is preserved in the New Testament. Second Corinthians chapter 6 is the classic text, you know, be ye not unequally yoked. You know, I remember I think I was about 12 and I had a girlfriend and my mum talked me to this text. You know, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14 made me memorize it. And you know, this, this principle established in the Old Testament is, a, is seen in the New Testament. You know, the principle that a follower of God should only marry, marry another who is also a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And notice that it's more than just being a believer. You know, one is a Christian. You know, it is one who is committed to following Christ. That is the most important criteria when it comes to seeking a spouse. And really, this makes so much sense, doesn't it? For as a believer, following and living for Christ ought to be the thing that matters the most to us. Now, why would we select a spouse who doesn't care even the slightest about these things. Oh, that is silly, that is foolish, and yet so many Christians make this mistake. Now I realize that we are all married in this room tonight, and hence I won't go on like I would to a group of teenagers. But the point that I do want to make is that as parents and grandparents, we need to teach our children and grandchildren this vital Lesson. You know, it is the parents that made this covenant in the text. Now, I understand that parents don't choose the spouse of their children in our culture, but parents still have a role to play. You know, the choice of a life partner is one of the most important choices that one ever makes. And hence, it's so vital that we help our children and grandchildren make wise choices. You know, teach them from a young age the most important things to look for in a spouse. You know, teach them that God says we are to marry one who loves and is following Jesus Christ. And that there is never an excuse to be in a relationship with an unbeliever for it is simply 
disobedience. You know, the scriptures are so clear in this area. And we must teach them to our children and grandchildren because if we don't teach them about relationships, then someone else will. And they will be governed by the world's standards, the world's philosophies rather than God's. You know, I, I've seen a fair few Solomon cases in my life, you know, where, where hearts have been dragged away from God because of relationships that should never happen. You know, this has been the case for some, some friends of mine. You know, and hence it's so important that we teach and we exemplify in our homes marriage done God's way. To God willingly prevent our children from going down the path of prohibited relationships. Now I could probably finish at that point, but as I pondered this text, one more thought came to my mind. And that was that this covenant was really a commitment to view and do marriage God's way. And I think that would be a good thought to finish with. You know, we live in a time where marriage is under attack from all sides. Satan is determined to disfigure and destroy this God-ordained institution. We can see that all around us. Right now, Probably more than ever, our our neighbours, our friends, families, work colleagues, our society needs to see Christian marriages as God intended them to be. Displaying the beauty of matrimony. Marriage is a beautiful thing, it's a precious thing. The Bible tells us it is honourable and this is how we should regard it. It is a gift from God that was given before the curse. It is to be cherished, it is to be enjoyed. Now yes, it will be hard. Marriage is hard work. You know, I'm not trying to paint some Disney fairy tale reality for that simply isn't true. You know, but we are to honor marriage, hold it in high regard, esteem it, be committed to it. And strive to possess the marriage with God's grace that he wants us to possess and enjoy. You know, may we be committed with God's help to conduct our marriages his way. Now, remembering marriage is God's institution and hence his way of doing things is the way to have a blessed marriage. Now, may we by his grace strive to be the best spouse we can be as spelt out in the word of God. And may our marriages be rich, filled with blessings, not overflowing with selflessness, self-sacrifice, service, love, provision, protection, joy. May our marriages display the beautiful relationship between Christ and the church, for that is our high calling. Certainly difficult, definitely challenging, But we don't do this in our own strength. We have the Holy Spirit and there is enough grace in Jesus Christ to assist and aid us to have the marriage that we ought to have. Beloved, our marriages will either positively or negatively declare more about Jesus and the gospel than anything we can ever say. What does our marriages declare about Jesus and the gospel? You know, let's do our marriages God's way. Amen.